2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson and Holly Fry is on a very, very well-deserved vacation today. So I have a special guest with me. That is Eric Lars Myers. He is founder, CEO and head brewer at Mystery Brewing Company president of the North Carolina Craft Brewers Guild and co-author of North Carolina Craft Beer and Breweries. And if you have not guessed already, he is here to talk to me today uh, about the history of beer. Hooray! Hi, Eric. Uh, hey, I'm, Tracy. I'm very glad to have you on. Eric is also a friend of mine. So uh, just to put that out there at the beginning. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Eric. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you about the history of beer. I have questions that, uh, some of them are questions that I've been curious about. Some of them are things that listeners have asked us about on the show before. So I'm very happy to have somebody, uh, on the show who was very knowledgeable about this. So a while back, we did a podcast on the history of cheese. And one of the things that we talked about in that podcast was about how to make cheese. A civilization has to have uh, animals that they have in a pasture that would produce more milk than their own young needed to survive. And the the civilization would also have to know how to milk those animals and how to have some way of storing the milk to make cheese out of it later. So how does that compare to what a civilization needs to make beer?
0: Well, I, I, in a lot of ways, it's not that dissimilar. What it really needs is grain. Beer is uh, and has been for thousands and thousands and thousands of years a grain-based alcoholic beverage. So really, at the end of the day, what people needed was grain and water uh, and some place to let it sit so that it could go through a natural fermentation process. and so without um, without agriculture, without fields of grain, it's hard to have enough grain to actually do that. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of theory that says that why humans settled down and stopped being a nomadic culture in general was because they had figured out how to make beer. And, you know, it, it's really heavy to carry around giant pots of water. And so in order to sit down and really get good and drunk, you needed to do it in one place. And so that's why they started villages. I think that there's just as much evidence that says that um, they figured out how to, you know, have agriculture and a consistent food source. And so that's probably why they were hanging out. But I think Peter was probably a great secondary uh, to that.
1: There's a good
0: motivation. Oh, uh- uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, once people figured out how to domesticate grain and actually uh, have this around for, for use, I can imagine that the, the mistake of making beer, which would, you know, sort of imagine this as grain sitting in a jar somewhere that gets left out during a rainstorm, uh, and then somebody doesn't really necessarily want to clean it up very quickly, it ferments and, you know, maybe an animal goes and drinks it and then somebody realizes that that animal is having a great time, uh, or maybe even tries it themselves, uh, you know I, that seems like a, a maybe not an easy mistake to make right away to discover how to make beer, but i imagine I can imagine a world in which it happened
1: so do we have any idea of who that was that made that first mistake and invented beer or how long ago it was
0: uh, so there's theories usually talk about eight to ten thousand years ago, uh, really right around when people were actually settling down and, and uh, you know stopped being a nomadic culture and sort of the fertile crescent. Area of the world um, in terms of you know what civilization you can go back to uh, ancient Sumerians uh, uh, and this kind of thing, but it probably predates any sort of organized um, you know cities or cultures. Uh,
1: so there are in several cultures. Gods and goddesses of beer or of brewing. Do you, do you have any cool stories about these figures in mythology?
0: So the, the one, well, I guess the, the real thing that comes to mind, most of the gods in, in history that have to do with beer are actually goddesses. Um, Nenkasi comes to mind from uh, Sumerian culture in which Nenkasi was the goddess of beer. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the other gods and goddesses through history were uh, were also women because women were really the the people that made beer for a really long time, uh, all the way up until the industrial revolution. Making beer was women's work. Uh, you know, it was the stuff that, that you had to do in the home and and uh, and around the kitchen. It was using a lot of the same ingredients that you were using to make bread, so uh, it made a lot of sense to have female uh, goddesses for uh, for beer. The the ones that come to mind uh in particularly in in sort of christian tradition is saint bridget in ireland she's the patron saint of ireland and um and she's one of the uh one of those appropriated saints uh that sort of got picked up as the as the church was spreading uh because she actually her existence predates uh catholicism or christianity in ireland but she is rumored to have actually uh made a, a lake of beer to feed the poor and uh and and turned water into beer for a leper colony. Uh there's all kinds of really great stories in which she spontaneously created beer in all of these places, which is in a lot of ways kind of what brewers do on a daily basis, turn water into beer. Uh, she also has a really great poem uh about uh how in heaven there's a lake of beer, which is which is pretty outstanding. The thing that I really want to point out though um is that there's a lot of theory that says that when you're reading the Bible, a lot of what is referred to as wine is probably beer because the the area in which the the Bible is actually set in uh, in history is actually more of a grain based culture than a wine based culture. Uh, you know people weren't really making a lot of fermented fruits. they were probably making fermented honey and fermented grain beverages. So for the most part, what you're looking at uh, when you're looking at a translation of the Bible it was something that was done in classic cultures like Italy or Rome, where they had a very wine-heavy history. So most of the time when you're reading something about uh, about wine in the Bible, they're probably actually talking about beer or mead or uh, some sort of blend thereof rather than sort of the traditional, you know, there's always these ideas of somebody drinking red wine while they're, you know, somewhere in, uh, uh, in the Fertile Crescent, which seems really inaccurate.
1: I had never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense sense like that's the the climate there is not quite as suitable to growing a, a bunch of red wine
0: grapes yeah and you know you look at you look at pictures uh as particular classic paintings of uh of biblical times and there's always this you know idea that people are in this incredibly fertile environment with all these grapes and and there's wine and and this kind of thing but in the grand scheme of things that really would not have been the case you're talking about a green culture and uh, in an area that it had grain-based alcoholic beverages for thousands of years before the time of Christ.
2: So
1: you were just talking about how, for a really long time, making beer was women's work. But there's also this association between beer and monks and monastic life. Where does that come from? Um,
0: so the the history of monks and beer really goes back to this idea of of charity and helping travelers and the poor when it comes to monastic traditions. So a lot of people were, or a lot of uh, monks, were creating beer not only to sustain themselves and just have, uh, you know, a really important source of of water and liquid within their own monastery, but the ability to be able to help travelers uh, and help the poor as charity to give something out as a nutritional value for people. For a long time, beer was really closely related to food, and really it still is in a lot of ways because it was a really great way to to make sort of you know liquid bread. It had a lot of good nutritional value. It probably wasn't as alcoholic as we really think about these times uh, in these days, but it it did have something that people would prize as both a source of nutrition and a source of hydration. So, you know, in in a lot of ways, it was charity work. It's turned in now to this really great thing, particularly in Trappist monasteries in Europe, um, and there's also one in the U.S. where the funds from uh, beer making actually go to a lot of charity work or to keeping the the you know roofs on the buildings at the monastery and, and um and all kinds of great stuff so it's um it's always sort of been a, a an arm of charity and an arm of food and beverage uh, as just a a normal way of operating through life rather than those monks you know just really liking to get super drunk use of hops started in a monastery uh you know all kinds of great stuff like this but in the grand scheme of things, it was really about being then um you know having a big party all the time
1: uh so you just mentioned that beer in the past was a lot more related to food i know listeners have asked us before about how there's this perception that uh you know the founders of uh, of of the united states were basically drinking beer all the time uh and does that mean that they were just kind of drunk all the time or was the beer that they were drinking uh, a lot different from the beer that there is today, or or is that whole idea just a misperception?
0: Oh, I would actually say it's probably a little a column a and a little column B. Uh, there was certainly a lot of alcoholic consumption throughout history and and I think that the idea that people were just a little bit drunk all the time uh, for the most part was probably not that much of a reach. Um, yeah you're talking about times, particularly as the founding of this country uh, in which a, a an essential handful of people decided to fight against the largest empire the world had seen at that point uh, in the British Empire. I feel like you got to be a little drunk to, you know, decide to go throw boxes of tea off the side of a boat. But um, beer would have been a lot different. Um, as, as you get closer to our time in history, it, is really becoming more and more like the beer we have today. But the farther you go back, the more it is a really fast uh, fermented beverage that is probably fairly low in alcohol for the most part. Um, and it's going to be consumed for nutrition and probably not really for buzz. You're going to get some beer that's a little bit higher in alcohol, particularly by the probably 17 or 1800s. People had a much better idea of, uh, you know, how to make beer that was, that was you know high in alcohol and really consistent. Uh, but before that, when you're talking middle ages and upwards, it's, it's, um, it's it's much more of a guess you know people didn't really know what was happening during fermentation it was the 1700s before or 1800s before people knew that yeast was a thing up until then they just called it god is good they would put the ingredients into the same vessel that it was before and then bubbles would happen and then that would get them drunk and that's really great um but it's not a really fantastic way to make a really consistent well-worn beverage so, uh, yeah, I think a little column A, a little column B. I think there was a lot of drinking. You know, I think you can look at the, the history of a lot of European cultures that shows that, uh, you know, there's probably a period in which pretty much everybody in England was uh, consuming gin all at the same time. Um, uh, so, yeah, people were probably a little drunk, uh, but, you know, probably not in the same types of ways that we think about it now.
1: Alright, well, before we move on to some more questions about beer history, we're going to take a brief pause for a word from a sponsor. <laughs> Okay, to get back into our uh, discussion about some beer history, um, there's a story that is widely repeated that's about how pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock because they were out of beer. Is there any truth to that?
0: There absolutely is. This is one of my favorite stories to tell on my tour. Um, so basically, because beer was such a great source of nutrition in water, uh, it was the thing that people tended to keep on boats for long ocean voyages. See, when you put water in a cask in a, in a big barrel and put it in, uh, in the, the hold of a ship and go across the ocean, that water is going to go rancid pretty quickly. You know, water is the building block of life. It has a, It's a great substrate for bacteria and mold to grow in. And when you're putting water inside of a barrel, no matter how great and clean that barrel is, there's a certain amount of rot that's going to sit into that wood and things are going to grow. So it was a great way to get people sick. Um, and it's, you know, it was, uh, very clearly before the times of reverse osmosis and desalination. So, uh, when you're looking for something to keep you hydrated throughout an ocean voyage, the most sensible way to do that was beer, particularly because beer has hops. Hops are an antibacterial. And of course, beer has alcohol and alcohol is somewhat of an antiseptic and will, um, actually stop a lot of harmful bacteria from growing in it. There are few to no human pathogens that can live in beer. So um, it it turns out to be a really great safe source of drinking water for these long voyages when you couldn't actually bring water with you. So when they were on their way across the ocean, they packed enough uh, beer to keep them going on their trip. But when they got to, you know, they're planning on a a, a 14-week journey or something like this. But when they, when they got there, they realized that not only were they running out of beer, but they had to really plan for the oncoming winter so that they could make sure that they had beer to keep them going. Um, so when they landed, they did so out of necessity. You now they probably, if they had more beer, could have gone around and found a much more temperate and nice place to live than New Hampshire. Um, it was probably those, uh, New Hampshire is lovely, but boy, the first winters, there were probably r- real cold. Um, so, uh, they, they really had to get on land and find a good source of water, a good source of running water so that they could actually build a brewery and have a good source of water for the winter.
1: Uh so we've talked a lot about uh people making beer in monasteries and women making beer in the kitchen when did making beer really turn into an industry
0: like everything else with the industrial revolution
1: thanks industrial revolution
0: <laughs> yeah right uh it's done so much for us uh yeah prior to the industrial revolution uh beer was really something that happened in the home it was um uh, it was happening in um uh, in manor houses and in, in farmhouses and all kinds of different places where basically you were looking for a good way to preserve some sort of grain for a longer time and, of course, preserve the source of uh, hydration as well. Uh,
1: So there is a famous German beer purity law uh, that people still follow today. That's the Reinheitsgebot. Tell me about how that was originally set down and why it has become so prominent even still today.
0: So the Reinheitsgebot is really interesting because in general, it's sort of a trade restriction more than it is a beer purity law. Um, at the time in Germany, you had uh, an area which was growing a lot of barley and a lot of wheat. Um, and barley is particularly well suited for brewing because of its uh, its protein content and its starch content. And wheat is not because it has a high protein content uh, and uh, and it does not have enough enzymes to convert its own starches into sugars and without getting really nerdy into science um, suffice to say that wheat's better for bread barley's better for beer so uh, at, at this point in history there was a lot of, of local grain production in um, but not a lot of restrictions on where things were going and so the Rhine Heinz was one of many trade restrictions that popped up just sort of control where ingredients were moving uh, from a trade restriction standpoint so the 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 1516 purity law, which is uh, what the, the Reinheitsgebot that people um, refer to, defines that beer must be made out of barley, hops, and water, and that's it. Um, it also defines how much beer should be sold for one pfennig per moss It defines, you know, like uh, where it can be sold, and all kinds of wonderful things that have nothing to do with the actual ingredients of beer. It uh, because it was referred to as the beer purity law, I think people tend to look back at it with this sort of uh nostalgic idea of like, oh, this is when beer was great. Um, you know, but you got to understand that that's before they even knew what yeast was, right? Like yeast isn't in the Reinheitsgebot. They had to amend the Reinheitsgebot in the 1850s to put yeast into it. Uh And I just totally made up 1850s. I have no idea if that's true. Uh But it was really like... <laughs> Um, it was after uh yeast was discovered by Louis Pasteur at the Carlsberg Brewery in Germany, uh that they said, Oh, well, I guess we have to put that into the law too, or otherwise we can't make beer. But it's uh it's been a pervasive law. It was actually law in Germany until the formation of the EU. Uh and once the EU came in, uh it's still considered a you know, uh, a, a great way to make beer, uh, but it couldn't be something that defined beer for other countries within the uh, the confines of the EU. And so they had to allow other ingredients in beer. The hilarious part about it is that there are plenty of classic styles from Germany that don't meet the uh, the Reinheitsgebot and people have just found ways around it. Uh, you know, you could get ducal permission to make beer with wheat uh, and all kinds of stuff like this. Uh, there's there's lots of beers in Germany that have you know salt added and coriander and all of these you know other things that are that are added to the beer. but somehow people sort of ignore the fact that that you know those don't fall under the Rheineinheitske, but they're still wonderful classic German styles that taste delicious. In America, we tend to um, romanticize it quite a bit in our breweries here, uh, particularly the the German style lager breweries in which you know this beer can't get more pure than this and um and, and it's a it's a wonderful romantic ideal that is uh, doesn't really bear truth to the rest of the world because you've got uh, a world full of brewing cultures in which putting all kinds of other things into beer is perfectly fine and those things can make amazing flavors uh you know without the rye headskip but we wouldn't have rye beers and we wouldn't have most of our belgian styles and you know you'd never have a fruit beer uh, and all of the great stuff that we innovate and create in America would not exist um, with the Reinheitsgebot in place. On the other hand, it is the the base of all beer. All beer is made with the four ingredients of barley, hops, water, and, and um, yeast, and it's the it's the simplest, easiest way to make beer.
2: So
1: all of those other things are are additions, not instead of. Right. Uh, so you just mentioned these uh, wonderful uh, beer styles in, in Germany and uh, in Belgium. How There are so many vastly, vastly different styles of beer today that taste so much different from one another. Uh, how did all of these different styles come about?
0: So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of fun stories out in the world about how different styles were created. And most of them are just stories. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence that shows that any particular style was invented here or there. Most of them grew out of local brewing traditions, just brewing with what they had local, locally available to them. The, the type of water that they were brewing with in their local rivers and the, the grain and hops and um, and ingredients that were growing near them in the world sort of came together naturally to create the, the types of beers that eventually became associated with styles. So. Uh, A lot of styles are sort of uh, worked backwards. Um, I think that my guess is that until homebrewing became a really uh, prevalent hobby in the US that people didn't really think about a lot of styles up until then. Uh, We have a tendency to categorize things in America. We really like to put things in boxes, uh, which is funny because we tend to like to break out of those boxes as often as possible. But I suspect that for the most part, a lot of the defined styles that we deal with today are uh, sort of modern inventions in, uh, by way of meaning that the, the reason that we call them is that sometime in the past 50 to 100 years, somebody said, oh, we should cast these things in a certain way, um, not because any one thing was intended as an invented style. Um, the only couple that come to mind are uh, Pilsner Urkel. Is the sort of archetypical Pilsner. It's the, it was the very first Pilsner in the world, and it was made first in Pils in the Czech Republic, basically because there was a brewer there that was making uh, making headway with the new malting process that didn't leave the, the malt very dark or smoky. So it was the first time you had pe- really bright, light, sweet malt. And Pils in the Czech Republic has incredibly soft water, and of course a lot of local hops in the Czech Republic. And putting those all together really made the first beer of its type, this this really bright, clear, uh, hoppy, but not bitter Pilsner beer. And it's called a Pilsner because it originated in Pils Czech Republic. And from there, people really liked that beer and started repeating it. And it's essentially how we have most of the light lagers that we have in the world today uh, are built off of that sort of archetypical Pilsner style. But for a really long time, any given beer made in Germany was named after the town that it was from, or in Austria or, or uh, Bohemia, uh, which is why you have uh, Dortmunder or, um, uh, I'm going to remember other things, a Vienna Lager or a Munich Lager, um, you know, all kinds of these great styles just built out of the fact that they were made in a town uh, using what was local rather than something that somebody tried to invent specifically.
1: So I have a few more beer questions, which we will get to after another quick word from a sponsor.
2: So
1: to get back to our beer conversation, earlier we were talking about how uh, beer used to be really made primarily by women. And today, at least in the United States, the beer industry seems to be pretty male dominated and beer is heavily marketed toward men with uh, sometimes beers for women being marketed as like girly beers uh how did that transition come you sound very chagrined how did that transition come about Uh,
0: well it, it really does come down to the industrial revolution when when people were starting to you know create factories factories were not a place for women for the most part and beer became a really big business as soon as you could make it in really high quantities and move it around you could uh you could sell it and make a lot of money um and so it became a, an industry, just like so many other things in our history, and really moved out of the home and into the factory. It's really taken until probably the last decade or so for for women to really get back into the brewing industry in a really meaningful way. I think if you were to look at the brewing industry now, as opposed to five or 10 years ago, you would see a significant higher, much more significant number of women in it, um, I know from my experience, my staff at my brewery is about 85% women, uh, and not because I, you know, particularly try to hire women so much as those just were the best people for the job. Um, so it, there's just a lot more women interested in the industry now. Uh, women are particularly good tasters, um, and a lot of the professional tasters in the industry are women because they have very delicate and very good palates. Um among the the best you know sort of blenders in the new sour beer industry and, and um are women uh and a lot of the you know most storied brewers in our country are starting to be women as well. It's really nice to see it sort of coming full circle and becoming more of a co ed industry uh, because it really is where it started.
1: So it seems like every year or so uh somebody finds an old beer in a shipwreck. Uh, either decides to drink it or decides to use the yeast to make a new beer. We've talked about these. We do these episodes, uh, our unearthed episodes at the end of every year, and it seems like we've told that story a couple of times. Uh this this year we're not. We have one that's about uh a surprising discovery of how early um barley was being used to make beer in China, which is earlier than people previously yeah. thought. Um, but like, it's, it seems to be just a very frequent thing of, oh, here is a shipwreck with some beer. We're either going to drink this beer or we're going to make, uh, we're going to, going to try to get the yeast and make a, a, a new beer out of this beer's yeast. How often does that actually turn out to be a good idea?
0: Uh, I, I would suspect that drinking the beer is probably not a great idea. Uh, you know, even though it's been cold and pressurized and, um, you know, and down there, it probably just doesn't taste very good. It could, uh, it could be great, but I suspect that what's mostly happened in that bottle is a lot of yeast death. Um, when yeast die, they burst and, um, you end up getting the, the contents of the cells inside of the beer and it sort of tastes soy saucy. It's a very umami kind of brothy flavor, which is just not always pleasant. It can be very good, but, you know, for the most part, beer, particularly really old beer from hundreds of years ago was really meant to be drunk fresh. Rather than aged 200 years in the bottom of the ocean, um, the yeast on the other hand, if there are surviving yeast cells, will almost definitely uh, allow new beer to be made. And I I have not read about any successful beers being made from old recovered bottles, but I have heard about yeast being recovered from amber from prehistoric times, Saccharomyces strains that have been used to make beer, uh, and getting sort of like uh, I believe it's like Dino beer or something um, on the West Coast where somebody's actually grew a yeast strain that was uh, that was trapped in amber and uh, was able to make beer with it. So, uh, it's definitely been done. I think that they have uh, some particularly neat flavor profiles, but they're not that widely known about or used quite yet.
1: Awesome. So the last question that I have for you, I know this is a question that you love to answer. Uh, there is a very famous quote about beer that is attributed to Ben Franklin, which is that uh, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that it, uh, you know, it's so pervasive in the beer industry and it's such a wonderful sentiment uh, that it's hard to be really angry about. But uh, I'm kind of a really pedantic nerd when it comes <laughs> to a lot of things. And so this is one of the things that that kind of kind of bugs me, uh, particularly because uh, ben Franklin didn't say that. Uh, I actually uh, I actually have the quote that he wrote, um, and so I'm going to read it to you, even though it's going to take uh, a minute here. Uh, we hear of the conversion of water into wine at the Cana as, as of a miracle, but this conversion is through the goodness of God made every day before our eyes. Behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards and which incorporates itself with the grapes to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. So he was really saying that about wine. Uh, Ben Franklin didn't really like beer all that much. He, was, um, <laughs> he didn't like a lot of things. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's, he's sort of a, you know, our wonderful historic curmudgeon. Uh, but he actually thought of beer as a sort of very lazy man's beverage. Um, he used to work in a printing house in, uh, in London and the people that drove him the most nuts were the people that were drinking beer. Uh, he they were the people that, you know, were sort of uh, uh what is there's another quote from him that says, um, uh they wanted to see from this in several instances that the water American, as they'd called me, was stronger than themselves who drank strong beer. We had an alehouse boy who attended always in the house to supply the workmen. My companion at the press drank every day a pint before breakfast, a pint at breakfast with his bread and cheese, a pint between breakfast and dinner, a pint at dinner, a pint in the afternoon about six o'clock, and another when he had done his day's work. I thought it a detestable custom. God, That's a just,
2: lot of pints.
0: Yeah, well, and it is. And, you know, uh, there was probably going back to, uh, you know, whether or not people were drunk all the time. Yeah, they probably were. Um, and, you know, particularly in some points of America, uh, or history, when you're living in an urban setting, it's not going to be the best smelling or wonderful place to be. And, you know, there's probably a certain amount of escapism to be had. But, uh, he was just not a big fan of beer, uh, at any time. So it's, um, it's always one of those things that kind of drives me nuts when you see him quoted that way, not because it isn't a beautiful sentiment and one that he actually meant, uh, you know, that you can look at it another way. Right. God makes rain fall upon the fields and grows barley that spontaneously turns into beer. Uh, but that's not what he said. It's a great sentiment. Uh, it's kind of like those those wonderful uh you know, memes on the internet that say, uh, you shouldn't believe everything you read signed Abraham Lincoln. Right. Or you read on the internet. Um, it's been attributed because it's sort of close, but, uh, I think we should take Ben Franklin out of beer.
1: <laughs> uh, so is there anything else about beer that you just want to make sure and a beer history that you want to make sure that our, our listeners know about before we wrap up?
0: Oh gosh. If I would have been prepared for that question, I probably, uh, would have something, but, uh, but no, I think this has been a lot of fun and um, and and really great.
1: Thank you so so much for being on the show, Eric. So once again, that was Eric Lars Myers, founder, CEO, and head brewer at Mystery Brewing Company, company among a lot of other things. And instead of our normal listener mail today, uh, I I am actually recording this from our Atlanta studio, which is not typical anymore. Uh, Eric is joining us via Skype. Uh, I have some long overdue shout outs to people who have sent things to us in the mail after just embarrassing long time of, of getting them, uh, getting through everything that's on my desk. So thanks to Christina for sending a bookmark with a picture of beautiful Estonian lace on it after hearing my disaster story about my shawl that did not come out the way I intended in our knitting episode. Thanks to Ashley for sending hand silk screened cards that say Happy Cake Day. They are delightful. Uh, thank you to Blaze for sending handmade hats and necklaces also after our nip- knitting episodes. Uh, Kara sent a copy of In All Its Fury, which is the book of first person accounts of the Blizzard of 1888 that we talked about in that episode. Uh, Marla from Haribo Books sent us a series of books that she wrote and illustrated. Uh, Ethan sent a documentary he made called Ghosts of the West's End of the Bonanza Trail and Talia sent us some adorable crochet, uh, animals. They are a, a bunny and a kitten. My apologies for just an embarrassing delay in thanking all these folks. Uh, and if I accidentally duplicated somebody, Holly has already thanked on the show because she is very often our, our male thank you person. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. dot com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com dot com slash history and on Twitter at miston history Tumblr is miston tumblr dot com and our pinterest is pinterest dot com slash history, which we can also find us on instagram at misston history. Come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, where you will find all sorts of information, including a lot about the science of beer. You can also come to our website, MissInHistory.com, to find show notes for this and all of our other episodes. We will have a link to where you can find Eric's book about North Carolina craft uh, beer and breweries. You will also find show notes for all of the episodes Holly and I have worked on and some videos we have been putting up uh, recently from our recent trip to Boston, Massachusetts. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mythsandhistory.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: the Amex dedicated card member entrance for the
2: win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency, where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test